Good morning, everybody. How are we today? Good. Lots of energy in the room. I can feel that, so that's good. Lots of energy. Uh, the greatest of these is love. We are in our third week of this series. We're going to continue in our uh, kind of June series examining the extravagant and scandalous love of Christ. Today, I get to talk about what I believe to be our most challenging aspect in our life of love, and that is the love of enemies. That will be our topic this morning. Before we get into this, though, I want to tell a little story. Uh, when I was 15, I began a process of learning how to drive, all right? So I had not quite got my driver's it's called a permit, right? Your driver's permit before you get your license. Not quite got that yet, but uh, it was kind of time to begin to learn how to drive. And so my dad set out on this journey with me driving the back country roads of North Spokane, learning all of the foundations and basics of how do you actually drive an automobile. And I want to be forthright and transparent with you all. I was pretty good, okay? I was not a bad driver out of the gates. Now, again, long open roads, no other traffic, not that tough to be uh, good driving an automatic 1990 Subaru, uh, which is what we were driving at that point. But some of those things kind of came natural to me. My dad, I think, kind of felt the same way, like, oh, my, my son actually uh, is decent at this. What my dad did not know is that as I was learning to drive, I was using both feet on the pedals. My right foot on the gas, my left foot on the brake. Now, certainly he couldn't see this, right? He didn't know, didn't know to instruct me that perhaps you only use one foot and you just move back and forth. To me, it came very natural, both feet. When I wanted to go, I would press with my right. When I wanted to stop, I would press with my left, no problem whatsoever. So we had been doing this for a couple of weeks, and it was now time for me to learn how to pull our vehicle into the garage, this being, you know, something that you've got to learn how to do. And so I, we had this driveway that kind of like came down, and then you made this big sweeping turn, and uh, we lived like at the bottom of a hill. And so we came in, you know, you kind of slow down, and I begin to pull into the garage. And I don't know, something about that moment for me created all this anxiety. Like, okay, this is a very tight window that I got to get into here. I've got to slow down, but I've got to make sure I make it all the way into the garage. And I just kind of freaked out and was like, okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to stop here real quick and collect. And rather than stopping what I did, I slammed on that gas. Immediately thrusting that car into our, free, our freezer that was in the garage. And all I can remember is the impact of that into the freezer, the freezer buckling over the hood of the car, and this frozen ham or turkey or something, whatever it was that was in the freezer, coming out, landing on the hood, and just spinning around <laughs> on the hood. We were in shock, right? <clears throat> My response in that moment was to open the car door and run away. <laughs> Opened the door, ran out of the garage, and I can remember there was a, like a little path that you could like run down uh, around to the backside of our house and then go in a back basement door. I ran, ran around that path into the basement, directly into my room, and just began weeping. 
I was so embarrassed. I was ashamed. I was scared. Like all of those emotions just in, uh, in me came flooding out. And I, I just sat in my room in the dark, so ashamed of that moment that I'd let my dad down. And after some time, my dad came downstairs. I can remember the, the knock on the door, fully expecting this enormous punishment to come down upon me. And he just sat down next to me on the floor. He gave me a hug. He assured me that it was an accident. He told me that I was loved. He shared a story of when he was young that he had something similar happen to him. And then he let me know that we would soon get back on the road and keep trying. And I can remember that moment and even like, you know, kind of the weeks after, thinking about how amazing and incredible my dad's love was. That how he reacted in that moment must have been so difficult for him. I mean, how could he still love me? I made such a stupid mistake. I cost him thousands of dollars, and yet I didn't get the punishment that I thought I deserved in that moment. Instead, I was shown grace. I was given love. And in many ways, that kind of moment, that experience for me, that situation informed my earliest understanding of the type of love that I imagined Jesus instructing his disciples to offer. As I came into faith, kind of owning my own faith a few years later, I can remember looking back on that moment and kind of thinking, this is, must be what Jesus instructed of his disciples. Now, having kids as myself, years and years later, I can understand that moment far better. And I hope that I would react in the same way when, certainly not if, one of my kids makes a similar mistake. And what I've come to realize about this moment, although it was beautiful, loving one's kid in that way is actually not all that challenging, not as challenging as I thought it was in the moment. The sacrificial and unconditional love that one can give to a child is not the extent of what Jesus teaches his disciples. Jesus calls us, his disciples, towards something far more extreme in our extension of love. He pushes us to extend love to our enemies in the same way that my dad showed me love in that moment. Now, to really love those who have wronged you, whom you maybe deem evil, to love the individual that you believe deserves punishment or destruction, this, I argue, is our greatest witness of the countercultural and redemptive love of Jesus Christ that we can offer the world. Stanley Hauerass says this, Agape begins by loving others for their own sake, which requires that we have love for the enemy neighbor from whom you can expect no good in return, but only hostility and persecution. The phrase enemy neighbor in this quote is important because I think most of our experiences of having enemies <clears throat> is not all that similar to the situation that Jesus usually taught in. Uh, 
I think Jesus mostly addressed enemies as the occupying, oppressive government and military actively persecuting the Jews in his time. Now, while there are certainly some of the same evil systems and the principalities working in our modern day, our face-to-face daily interaction with another human being as enemy is not what most of us live in the same way that Jesus taught. And that's why I think enemy-neighbor in this quote is an important distinction for our context. Because for the love thy enemy gospel teaching to be transformative in our lives, I think we must interpret enemies as those whom we have demonized in our mind. The people that we have pushed to hold the place as outsider. They very possibly might be our neighbors. Could be person that holds a different political or social or theological position as you. Could be the partner that broke your heart. Could be your lazy co-worker. Could be the estranged family member. It could be the socio-political warmongering leader. And it's everyone in between that we subconsciously feel our lives and our world would be better without. With this as our framework of who our enemies might be, let's look at Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5. He says this, You've heard that it is said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Bonhoeffer speaks to these ideas when he says this, to the natural man, the very notion of loving his enemies is an intolerable offense and quite beyond his capacity. It cuts clean across his ideas of good and evil. More importantly still, to man under the law, the idea of loving his enemies is clean contrary to the law of God which requires men to sever all convection with their enemies and to pass judgment on them. Jesus, however, takes the law of God into his own hands and expounds upon its true meaning. The will of God, to which the law gives expression, is that men should defeat their enemies by loving them. As Bonhoeffer suggests, Jesus is expounding upon the law And in this expansion, I think Jesus does a few critical things, and he establishes a very, very important pattern for us to understand. The first thing he does is he speaks to the traditional righteousness. Then he reinterprets that traditional understanding. And lastly, and what I believe is most important, he calls his followers to a distinct type of discipleship. So the pattern he establishes here is the movement from acquired knowledge to a new understanding to required action. Here's how it plays out. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye. That's the acquired knowledge, the law. It's what everybody knew. It's what everybody had an understanding of. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. This is Jesus' expansion. It's his new interpretation. Rather, Turn the other cheek, give your coat, go the extra mile. 
the required action involved in that type of love. Now, each of those three scenarios that he offers as examples, the turn the other cheek, the giving of your coat, the going the extra mile, they would have been profoundly countercultural ways to expose the injustice in that moment and then creatively extend the redemptive love of Jesus in a way that forces the oppressor or forces the enemy to choose a response. These teachings are not instructing passivity, nor are they eliciting a response in violence. They are in them very selves a third way, the only way that is true to our call as disciples. I think too often when we're dealing with our enemies, we give in to our fight or flight instinct. Now, it's understandable because that thing is kind of hardwired into us, but additionally, it is confirmed and intensified every day in our polarized and divisive culture. But neither of these reactions, fight back or flee, stand the test of how Jesus calls his disciples to live. Jesus' third way is not an inseparable counsel to perfection, attainable only by a few. It is a simple and right way to live and can be pursued by many. The more who attempt it, the more mutual support there will be in following it. Walter Wink writes that. So I want to look at three unique ways that I think we must pursue a more loving posture, a third way toward our enemies. And here's the first one. Cultivate humility. Cultivate humility. To truly love an enemy is a work that must start within. We must first acknowledge and confess our shortfall in how we love and then pray for a change of heart. And that requires deep humility. It necessitates a sober estimation of ourselves and our actions and a willingness to accept the truth of who we are and how we sometimes act. In our greatest of these passage that we read just a little while ago, in verse 11, Paul gets at this idea as he reflects on his current mode of thinking when he says this, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. When I was a child, I was convinced I was right most of the time. How many people feel that way when they were children? How many people feel that way right now? You don't have to raise your hand. (laughs) I couldn't imagine how someone wouldn't see it the way that I saw it. How could people be so stupid? I placed myself at the center of every story and assumed that others served and lived at my pleasure. That way of thinking is an incredibly efficient way to create a lot of enemies in your life. Some of us in this room, myself included, too easily slip back into thinking like a child. And we need the words of Paul to remind us in humility to put these ways 
behind us. To really love anything or anyone requires us to decenter ourselves. And this can only start if we every day are cultivating humility. Second, find the humanity in the other. Find the humanity in the other. Our understanding of any given relationship can easily be clouded by someone's actions. Now, this is not to say that actions should not or cannot hurt because they can, but we must always remember people are far more complex than the sum of what they say or what they do. To seek the humanity in another person, especially in someone who we have deemed as other or as enemy, is the search for the divine goodness that I believe everyone is created from and in. Wink goes on to say from that earlier quote, it cannot be stressed too much. Love of enemies has for our time become the litmus test of an authentic Christian faith. Love of enemies is the recognition that the enemy, too, is a child of God. You cannot both hold the theological belief that we, as babies, as children, are perfectly and wonderfully made, born in the image of God, but then neglect to recognize or accept that same understanding of divine goodness in the people whom you've been wronged by. Yes, it can be hard to see. Yes, it might even feel like that goodness is suppressed and seemingly unrecoverable. But just as each of us is born as a child of God, so are our enemies, children of God. The journey to find and honor each person's humanity is a necessary step in dismantling our enemy labels and opening our hearts to a greater love. Third, do good without expectation. Do good without expectation. In Luke's gospel retelling of our Matthew 5 passage that we read earlier, he adds this section, which has always been really helpful for me. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those whom you expect repayment, what credit is to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Do good without expecting a return. More often than not, I think the enemies we have created are those in our lives who didn't reciprocate in the ways that we had hoped or expected. That lazy coworker doesn't respect your time and then creates more work for you. That partner that left and broke your heart didn't follow through with the commitment like they had promised, the commitment that you were trying to fulfill. That family member that's estranged didn't return love in the same ways that you always tried to show. If your approach to others is contingent upon equal return, then you will spend your life disappointed and you will be able to make enemies of most people 
around you. There might not be a better person to speak to this truth than Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. when he says this, Now, there is a final reason I think that Jesus says, love your enemies. It is this, that love has within it a redemptive power. And there is a power there that eventually transforms individuals. Just keep being friendly to that person. Just keep loving them. And they can't stand it too long. Oh, they react in many ways in the beginning. They react with guilt feelings, and sometimes they'll hate you a little more at that transition period, but just keep loving them. By the power of your love, they will break down under the load. That's love, you see. It is redemptive, and this is why Jesus says love. There's something about love that builds up and is creative. There's something about hate that tears down and is destructive. So love your enemies. Let me add this to MLK's thought here. By living with this mentality of just keep loving, just keep doing good, you yourself will also slowly transform. Not just the enemy. You yourself will also slowly transform. To do good without expectation of return is to continue to build up. It's the only thing we can control in our relationships, and it's by these actions the kingdom will continue to advance. In 1 Corinthians 13, we see that love is patient, that it is kind, that it is not envious, that it does not boast, that it is not proud, that it does not dishonor others, that it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, that it keeps no records of wrongs, that it does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. We see that love always protects and trusts and hopes and perseveres. Paul's lift, uh, list of the unequivocal actions of love in this section describes the indiscriminate reality of godly love. Jesus, in the remainder of that Matthew 5 passage, says this, you have heard that it was said, and notice the use of that same pattern we already discussed, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Son keeps no record. The rain does not choose where it will fall. These are the indiscriminate realities of nature where rhythm and consistency trump feeling and desire. This is how God loves us, his children, and it's how we are called to love others, including our enemies. Boyd says this, notice that there are no exception clauses found anywhere in the New Testament's teaching about loving and doing good. 
to enemies. Indeed, Jesus' emphasis on the indiscriminate nature of love rules out any possible exceptions. The sun doesn't decide on whom it will and will not shine. The rain doesn't decide on whom it will and will not fall. So too, kingdom people are forbidden from deciding who will and will not receive the love and good deeds we are commanded to give. Although it's difficult in practice, the love we are called to extend to our enemies is not all that complex. We certainly try to make it as such. We question the motives and intentions of others. We draw up home invasion scenarios, excusing the possible use of violence. We justify our hatred of others by our feelings. But the teachings of Jesus are pretty clear that there is only one way to treat the other, and that is with sacrificial love. Being a kingdom person, a disciple of Jesus Christ is no easy task, especially when it comes to our mandate to love our enemies. But Newcom, be encouraged that we are called to something far greater than what comes natural and easy. And it's this call when practiced by the faithful that we will have a hand in transforming our world. Amen.